Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to episode 23 of the show about the show. I am the host and creator of this podcast. My name is Devlin Clark. You can find me on Twitter at Devlin underscore Clark 84. That's D-E-V-L-I-N underscore Clark 84. Also, please listen to my podcast and give us a five-star review if you like it. That helps us to get more recognition on iTunes, and the more people who like it on iTunes, the more this podcast can become successful. I am so excited about today's episode. So the episode that I have today, um, I have a New York Times best selling author on the show today. I have a gentleman who has written over 20 books in his long life. His last four books are related to the New York Yankees. He also had a pretty cool job in the summer of 1968. He's worked as a television, uh, as an executive producer on television. He was the, he is a former director of public relations for the New York Yankees. His name is Marty Apple, and he will be joining us here shortly. Marty is going to join me, and we will take a trip back throughout his illustrious career and listen as this wonderful, wonderful storyteller and man and author talks all about writing and how he comes up with the book ideas and um, just kind of working for the Yankees and having a having a, a perspective on baseball that not a lot of people have. So that is what today's episode is going to be. It is going to be the next 60 minutes of your day. So it will be fun. Marty is an outstanding guy. He is a great author. Like I said, he's written over 20 books. I want to say he told me 24 is the number, and he's got a new book coming out this week, or I'm sorry, next week that we are going to talk about. So that will be fun to do. And we will also, like I said, talk about his job in the summer of 1968. So you do not want to miss that. He had one of, oh, probably the coolest jobs of all time. He, uh, I'm not going to spoil what it is because I don't want, I want to let Marty tell the story, but uh, it's, it is an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly amazing story. He, uh, it, it relates to ooh, probably the the biggest legend and one of the biggest legends in baseball history. So it's, uh, you know, no big deal. But uh, at the same time, it's also it's also a very, very big deal. So it's. It's one of those things that uh, you know we're. I'm looking forward to. I'm gonna have, gonna have Marty talk about, and it, it's just gonna be a lot of fun. Um, Marty is a New York Times bestselling author. One other thing that you guys might not know about Marty, he also has won an Emmy Award. So he is not only a New York Times bestseller. He's also an Emmy Award winner, and we will get into that as well. Gonna, while we're waiting for Marty to get here or to call in, I will, I'm going to go over a couple of podcast episodes that I have coming up. So I have two more podcasts coming up this evening. I have another podcast here in about three hours or so with Drew from Let Me Get That Potograph. That is going to be episode two in the Collector's Corner series. Episode one was um, with the uh, lady Susan Lou LaRouge, LaJudy, I'm sorry, from Tops, and we talked all about the hobby and Tops and the images and autographs and everything like that, so that was a lot of fun. We are going to talk with Drew. He has, like I said, he has a felt, he has a podcast as well called Let Me Get That Podographed. Um And he... And he, uh, 
he is going to he is going to come on and we are going to talk about that. And yes, yeah, so he's uh he's gonna be on and we are going to talk about um talk about everything going on from from everything else going on. So uh without any further ado, I have Marty here. So I'm going to bring Marty on again. He is Marty Apple. He has written over 20 different books, including several new Yankees, including several Yankees books. What a lot of people consider to be the definitive book about the New York Yankees history and the team. And he's just gonna he's he's gonna share some of his stories. Marty, how you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thank you very, very much for uh, for coming on and having me uh, l- allowing me to uh, to share some some of your time with you today. I My really pleasure. It. My pleasure. So let let's talk a little bit about um, early on. You you were born in Brooklyn, New York, and. You graduated from State University with a degree in political science and journalism. Can you talk about kind of the road that led you to State and what made you decide to do political science and journalism? Um, Well, at Oneonta, where I went to school, they didn't have a journalism major per se, but I was sports editor and then editor-in-chief of my campus weekly newspaper. Um, And I took majored in political science because I've always had an interest in that. Um... When, after my freshman year, I just got a flash in my brain to write a letter to the Yankees PR director, Bob Fischel, and inquire as to whether there might be a summer job uh, available. I didn't even define what it would be, just a summer job. Um, I thought there'd be hundreds of such requests, and I kind of thought I wouldn't even hear back. But in the late 60s, which is the period we're talking about, there weren't a lot of college students who were interested in baseball. Baseball was going through a really down period. And the idea that a college student would want to work in that field turned out to be kind of remote. So actually, mine was the only such letter that he got. And he did have a little PR crisis at the time in that Mickey Mantle, at the height of his popularity, was receiving so much fan mail that Mickey wasn't going to answer it, he wasn't going to keep up. So they needed somebody to answer the mail, and uh, here was my letter, and there were all those unanswered letters, and I got hired. So it was really a quirk of good fortune, good fate, good timing. wouldn't happen again today, I don't think, but uh, in 1967, it was a heck of a good opportunity for me. For sure. Talk about talk about what that whole experience was kind of like. I mean, I mean, imagine just you know being a being an 18 year old kid and and working for probably the most famous baseball team in America and handling mail for arguably the biggest baseball player in America. What was that whole experience like? That must have had to been pretty surreal. Well, it was totally wonderful because I really was a Mickey Mantle fan and a New York Yankees fan since I was a little boy. So this was, you know, stepping into paradise for me. Uh, The letters themselves to Mick were not very interesting. Dear Mickey, you're my favorite player. Please send me an autographed baseball. Nevertheless, I did manage to always pull out two or three letters that I thought I needed to go over with him in person. (laughs) So (laughs) it would give me FaceTime with him. And we actually hit it off very nicely. He was really nice to me. He was a terrific guy to be around. And it gave me time to go pull up a stool next to his in the Yankee clubhouse. And we would talk about, you know, the letters, which would take 20 seconds. But then we talked about other stuff, too, and we formed a genuine friendship out of it. 
What were some of the other things? Um, you know, obviously share as much as you want, but what are some of those other things that you that you and Mickey Mantle talked about besides the letters? Um, it might be hard for me to remember right now. Not that I wouldn't talk about it, but I'll tell you one little anecdote which was kind of special. In spring training one year, um, he and I and two or three other guys walked from our hotel to the nearby movie theater and we saw the last picture show which is an old film now with um Sybil Shepherd was in it and it took place in this dust bowl forlorn town in Oklahoma Texas area and it really hit home with Mickey cuz that's where he was from and as we were walking out I saw he had a tear you know on his cheek and I was like, are you crying? And he said, I was just like my hometown. You know, no kidding. And he said, we even had a village idiot just like the one in the movie. <laughs> so that was a pretty special memory to share that with him. Absolutely. Did you, what other, what other people in the clubhouse, I mean, obviously, you know, handling fan mail, you get up close access that a lot of people don't. Well, who are some other players that, that you remember um, kind of being around and being very fond of um, for the Yankees in that time period? Well, it's interesting you ask because I was most fond of the guys who knew me by name. That's meant so much that a Yankee player knew my name. <clears throat> One of the first right. you don't think of as a Yankee, but we got Rocky Calavito the summer of 68. And since he was new, he felt like he had to learn everybody's names. So I was one of them, and Rocky Calavito knew my name, and Ruben Amaro knew my name, and Steve Whitaker, an outfielder, knew my name, and we used to play um, fungo out on the field before the, before batting practice. So uh, Tommy Tresh knew my name. Um, gosh, hard to remember back to the team from 1968. But there were a bunch of guys who did, and that meant a lot to me. Absolutely. So when you so you you were handling Mickey's mail for a couple of years and then in uh, 1970 you were 21 years old and you got a promotion. Talk about talk about what position you you got and what promotion you got. Well, Bill Gilfoyle was Bob's assistant, the assistant PR director. He got an opportunity to go to the Pittsburgh Pirates as their top guy and did. That left the position of Bob's assistant open, and Bob called me. I was still in college, remember. I had only been working during college breaks in the summer. Uh, and he called me up in college, and he said, this position is open. We need to fill it now. Would you be interested? And, boy, I couldn't let that go. So uh, I arranged with some teachers to finish up by independent study. I had one semester left. And bang, one Friday I was in Oneonta studying political science. And 10 days later, I was in Fort Lauderdale for my first spring training. Wow. That's, that, that's a really, really neat story. So then you, you, have, you hold the role of Assistant Public Relations Director for two years until 1973. And then you get promoted to Public Relations Director. You take over Bob's job by George Steinbrenner. What was that conversation like? Well, he, uh, Bob Fischel was moving on to the American League office to be their PR director. And uh, so that left that vacancy. And the culture of baseball was generally that uh, the PR positions kind of went to newspaper guys who had been around the team for years. So they tended to be older guys. Uh, hiring somebody my age, 24, was really a, a leap. It just really wasn't done. Um, but George Steinbrenner was a new owner. He was only 42 himself. He didn't really know the culture of the game. And he called me in and he asked me if I felt I was capable of doing Bob Fischel's job. And actually I was. I felt very confident in that because I'd learned from Bob Fischel for like four years doing the fan mail and being his his assistant. So I said, yes, I've learned from the best. So he said, okay, you're my new PR director. 
And I was, and I think I remain the youngest ever in Major League Baseball. And, you know, of all teams, the New York Yankees, the most high-profile team of all, was really quite an honor. Absolutely. And you did, you, you, and that is correct, you uh, you were the, you were and still are um, the youngest PR director of Major League Baseball history at the age of 23. So you're you're there for most of the mid 70s and then and then early 1977 something changes what happens in the year, in early 1977 well agents were becoming prominent and making a lot of money on players contracts they'd been scorned until uh you know mid 70s and that all changed with the catfish hunter signing with the yankees so yeah. Joe Garagiola Jr. and I both were working for the Yankees, and we were working hard on these contracts and on the PR that went with it, and we kind of looked at each other, and we said, you know, everybody's getting rich off these contracts except us. Why don't we become them? And we decided we were going to form an agency and represent the ballplayers. And so with a with mixed emotions, I didn't really want to leave the Yankees, but economically it made sense. Joe is still a vice president with Major League Baseball. He was the general he became general manager of the Diamondbacks when they were in the World Series. And we remained very close friends and uh off we went. That was uh that was when I left the Yankees formally. Although, as I'm sure you'll get to in the progression of my career, the connections and the ties to the Yankees stayed close to this day. Absolutely. You mentioned 1977. You you started a sports management company. You handled public relations for the New York Apples of the world team tennis. And normally I don't get into tennis, but the the one, um, that team had a very interesting um, member on it, and that was Billie Jean King. Can you talk about what the mid-'70s was like in terms of tennis and for Billie Jean King? Yeah, I don't want to get too far off baseball, but I would say that uh, working with Billie Jean King was as much a thrill for me as Mickey Mantle. Now, I knew I'd get a kick out of Mickey Mantle because I'd been a fan since I was a kid. I didn't know that about Billie Jean King, but getting to work with her, I mean, let's face it, she's Jackie Robinson. She's of that importance culturally, and um, It was a tremendous uh, honor and thrill to work and travel with Billie Jean as we went from tennis match to tennis match around the country. So when that league folded, you decided to follow in your uh, in the footsteps of Bob, and you joined the staff of Major League Baseball and the commissioner Bowie, at the time, Bowie Kuhn. Talk about that decision. Yeah, I was happy to get back into baseball, um, especially being unemployed since the tennis league had folded. Um, So I went back in as a spokesman for Commissioner Kuhn, and ultimately, even after I wrapped up there, uh, I collaborated with him on his memoir, which was called Hardball, and it was a terrific opportunity to just work with him and recap Uh, I think it was 17 years he was commissioner. My job was to sort of keep him on schedule, uh, you know, come in prepared with all the events of each year and have him give his opinions and everything on that. Ultimately, history hasn't been that kind to him since he lost so many battles to Marvin Miller. But uh, just the history he was involved with, And the way he took baseball into its modern era in terms of marketing and television and, you know, the advances that were made, taking it from a small mom-and-pop business into, you could really say, during that time, into the huge structure that it is today. You mentioned mentioned Marvin Miller and his battles with Billy Kuhn. Did you witness any of those firsthand? No, not any of their in-person phone calls or personal meetings. Okay. But I was an admirer of Miller. Uh, didn't have, you know, like a, a rooting interest in him losing because I felt like he was on the right side of justice there. And I think Kuhn kind of knew <laughs> it was happening, too, and there was little he could do sure. about it. But, 
Miller was a tremendous success in all he advocated and uh, to see the game the way it is today. I mean, so many owners back then were fearful that free agency was going to kill baseball, uh, that the teams couldn't hold on to their stars was going to be the ruination of baseball. And it turned out to be quite the opposite. Uh, the players got very rich and the fans loved the off season for the free agent signings and, you know, how interest stayed high 12 months a year. And then you get these new stars on different teams every spring. And, um, John Carlos Stanton wasn't a free agent. That was a trade, but that's sort of the feeling like now Yankee fans can't wait for the start of the 2018 season because of a player of that magnitude suddenly having arrived. Absolutely. So after you get done um, working for Commissioner Kuhn, you served as the VP for Public Relations for a TV station, WPIX, in New York, where you won an Emmy Award as the executive producer of Yankee Telecast a position you held until 1992. Talk about uh talk about not only that whole experience in terms of being the executive producer for the Yankee telecast but also winning the Emmy award because that had to be a pretty cool moment. That was pretty cool. The Emmy's still on display. I didn't tuck it away anywhere. Um <laughs> I'll tell you the truth of all my stops in my career WPIX might have been my happiest, and I say that even with having worked for the Yankees. I totally loved the television industry. It was fascinating to me. Such a bigger industry than baseball was. So much more to know and learn. I was also the PR director for the station, so I had to understand the news operation, um, public affairs, uh, commercials, how they got placed, um, just sure. the, the technology, the satellites were coming in then, WPIX became a superstation. It was a fascinating time, and I loved every minute of it. And then I became the executive producer of the Yankee Telecast, so I was back in that universe again. Now, you've, you've also done, in addition to that, you've also done some work for the Olympics and also for the Tops Company. What do you do for Tops? I was uh, Topps' first public relations director. The industry had grown so big. You'll remember the early 80s uh, or the early 90s when everybody was getting rich on <laughs> baseball cards. Uh, yep. So the industry was big enough that the little card companies now needed more executive power. They brought me in to handle PR, and that was great. That was fun because I was a collector of Topps cards as a kid, and um, I enjoyed that a lot. Then the baseball strike came in 1994, and that kind of killed off the industry. It still exists today, but it really never recovered from that strike. Um, so I ultimately uh, got laid off along with 65 other people when the size of the business just shrunk. But I started my own company, Marty Appel Public Relations, and um, Tops came aboard as my first client. So the association continued. The connection to the Yankees continued because the Yankees were a licensee. And um, it was just, uh, you know, there's a lot of different stops we're talking about here, but somehow they're all kind of under the same umbrella, and the Yankee connection still held. Absolutely. So one other really cool thing that you've gotten to do before we kind of delve into your writing career, one other kind of non-writing thing that you got to do that was pretty cool was you assisted in the uh, PR for the Israeli national baseball team at the 2013 uh, WBC. Can you talk about how that came along? And well, they were one of my that? PR clients. Uh, okay. I always had 10 or 12 clients at a time. They were one of them. There was a, there's a fascination among Jewish people for all things baseball, um, whether it's the literature or the culture of the game or the rules of the game. Jews, Jewish people tend to be great baseball fans. And around that time, a fellow up in Boston, Martin Abramowitz, published a set of all Jewish baseball players in history, a set of cards. 
So he brought me in to do PR for that, and kind of spurred by that, I think, Israel decided to enter a team in the World Baseball Classic. And um, I'm getting ahead of myself. Before the World Baseball Classic came an attempt to develop a a professional league in Israel. Um, The league only lasted one summer, uh, wasn't financially successful, but... They brought me in for PR, and I wound up going to Israel to make help make this a bona fide league. Because if you think about it, I was like the American baseball executive involved with it. Dan Duquette was obtaining the players, now the general manager of the Orioles. Um, yeah. But I was the one who had to make sure there was an official scorer at every game, that the stats were compiled accurately, that they were submitted when they were supposed to be submitted, you know, we needed to make it professional in every sense. So it was a good feeling to know that we got that done. And I wish the league had continued on. But we really didn't attract much fan, many fans from the population of Israel, more so just American tourists. And that wasn't going to be enough to sustain the league. But it was a great summer. It gave me a chance to go to Israel. Never thought I would do that. Did you? Uh, you must have had a great sense of pride, obviously, being Jewish and being able to, to kind of uh, represent your your religion in, in that kind of manner in the sport that you love and you've grown up around. Talk about talk about how that felt being Jewish to be able to um, kind of represent the uh, represent the Israeli national baseball team. Yeah, well, it was a fun assignment for me, and it felt good to be able to visit Israel. I mean, by no means am I like a prophet coming out of the uh, book of Deuteronomy to uh, talk to to talk to Jewish people, but uh, I knew my baseball, and I learned the media, and you know, working with them, visited all the press, all the newspapers and TV stations in Israel. So I was applying what I could uh, to the situation, and I, it went well. It was a good feeling. Well, let's let's dive right into uh, to some of your writing. So, when we were preparing for this interview, I was I was contacting you, and I was telling you one of the things I I really wanted to talk about was uh, King Kelly because he's just he's such a great figure in baseball history. Talk to me about King Kelly and also how you got the idea to and the process of writing that book. Well, the first book I wrote was when I was still with the Yankees. It was a book called Baseball's Best, the Hall of Fame Gallery. And they were 1,500-word essays on every member of the Baseball Hall of Fame. So that was hard work, but for a first book, you kind of put out extra effort to make sure you've got pride in it when it's over. And when I finished writing all those biographies, uh, Mike Kelly, King Kelly, as he was nicknamed, kind of stood out to me as a guy I didn't really fully appreciate, didn't know enough about. And his biography, he only lived 36 years, but his biography was fascinating. And he was in many ways the game's first superstar. In fact, this is a little bit of American cultural history that I learned, but the act of autographing kind of began with King Kelly. Uh, He was a huge star by the time he went to Boston, being Irish and everything like that. Sure. Um, So prior to Kelly, people knew that having a signature of George Washington or General Custer or Abraham Lincoln uh, was a nice thing to have, but nobody pursued celebrities in the streets and said, hey, can I have your autograph? Until Kelly. People knew what time he had to be at the ballpark, and kids would sort of line the streets waiting for his arrival. They'd stick little pieces of paper and a pencil in his hands, and that's where it all began. Uh, <clears throat> Mike King Kelly signing his autograph. Uh very few of which survived to this day because they were in pencil. But um, Kelly became a culturally significant guy, not only through the autographing, but he would appear in the off-season on the vaudeville stage, 
doing a little song and dance act, a painting of him hung in pretty much every saloon in Boston, of him, uh, the, the poem Slide Kelly Slide, which was actually mm-hmm. the first pop hit record when Edison invented the phonograph and people started buying records. So Slide sure. Kelly Slide was the first pop hit record. Everybody till then was buying church music or opera or um, uh, patriotic music, but Slide Kelly Slide sure. was the first pop hit. So anyway, I wanted to do a standalone biography of Kelly, and I did. Um, it was published in 1996, and it won the Casey Award as the best baseball book of the year. So that was pretty cool for a kind of small publisher, small, little-known biography. And uh, I'm very happy to have been honored with that, and that book got terrific reaction. What was the, what was that book called for for people who, in case they want to go buy it? Just what you would expect. It was called Slide Kelly Slide. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. You know, one of my one of my favorite anecdotes about King Kelly um, comes from the from the baseball series that Ken Burns did, which is just a marvelous, marvelous series that I recommend for any baseball fan. And there's they talk about how how back then the game had different rules than it did now. And back then, all you had to, had to do was announce your presence and you were in the game. And there was a game going on, and, some, and the batter hit a pop, hit a foul ball, and he hit a pop, he hit a foul pop fly. And Kelly jumped up off the bench and said, Kelly, Kelly's now playing third base for Boston, caught the ball, and it was recorded as an out. So, <laughs> Good for you. Enough. That's exactly what happened. And Kelly would yeah, also take advantage of the days when there was only one umpire on the field. So he would be known to cut from second to home and miss third base by a lot and uh, get away with it because the umpire <laughs> was out in the outfield uh, checking on fair or foul out there. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Now you, you, you also wrote a couple of children's biographies about Yogi Bear and Joe DiMaggio. Tell us about those. There was a series of books, probably about 25 in all, on baseball heroes. So um, I was asked to do Yogi and DiMaggio. And a lot of things Yankee-oriented have come my way over the years as I've aged and kind of been seen more and more as a guy who knows his Yankee history. So those were two biographies I was happy to do. And um, Yogi himself became a client when I had my PR company, the Yogi Berra Museum. I was a member of the board of directors there, and I also did the PR for the museum, and I got much closer to Yogi than I'd ever been when he was a coach with the Yankees. So that was a a really warm friendship because he was just a When he'd walk into the room, you'd just feel better about life. He was such such a wonderful guy. What's your favorite Yogiism? Well, it's interesting you ask that because I think I may have been present for his last yogiism. Uh, everybody knows the famous ones, Fork in the Road and you know things like that. But um, yep. I went to visit him at his assisted living place when he was in the final stages of his life. I had resisted going, actually, because I just felt it was sort of invading his privacy. But then one day I just said to myself, Marty, what are you talking about, (laughs) invading his privacy? He's probably bored to death every day. It's not like you're a fan coming to shake his hand. You're friends. Go go see the guy. So I went, and um, we talked baseball. He was still sharp of mind, I remember talking about how the Yankees had more speed in his day than is generally known. He was telling me how fast Hank Bauer was as a runner. But anyway, when it was time to leave, um, a nurse had come into the room. And Yogi turned to the nurse and said, um, what time is 3 o'clock mass? <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I think I just saw the last Yogiism. <laughs> and... Sure enough, he passed away like two weeks later, and it may well have been the last yogiism. I was present. I was present for it. 
You've also written books about umpire Eric Gregg, Larry King, Bowie Kuhn, Lee McPhail. But one of the most important um, players that you've written a book about is called was Thurman Munson, the Yankee captain. It was called Thurman Munson, an autobiography. And you were quoted as saying it was Thurman's book. He was free to leave out whatever he wanted. What what pro what was the process like to go through that? Obviously, you know you might not. I don't know if you met Thurman or not, but and you just did a lot of you had a lot of research working with the Yankees. But what was that process like? Did you work with the family and anything like that? Well, we knew each other well because I was the Yankee PR guy for his throughout his career. So uh, he had won the MVP in seven in seventy six. And I called him and asked him if he was interested in doing a book. And he said no. He thought he was too young. And I said, well, Thurm, somebody's going to do a book about you. You're not going to make any money off it, and you're probably not going to like what it says. Why don't you do your own, look at it as an insurance policy against that? So that made sense to him. And so we did the book together. And he didn't tell very much about his childhood, which turned out to be quite a difficult childhood in a kind of a loveless home. But um, the book did okay. Um, wasn't very controversial, so it didn't get a lot of headlines when it came out. But then when he died two years later, uh, the publisher reissued it with a new afterword chapter by me. And... As you would expect, that sold a lot. Thirty years later, on the 30th anniversary of his terrible plane crash approaching, um, my publisher at Doubleday called and said, how about a uh, full-blown biography of Thurman, including you know, his death and the aftermath, which uh, wasn't really part of the first book. So for that, I did a lot of research with the family and other people and high school classmates, things like that. So there came a full-blown biography, which touched on the difficulties of his childhood and all he had to overcome. And that book became uh, my first New York Times bestseller. So that was very well received, and that one is simply called Munson, The Life and Death of a Yankee Captain. You also wrote a book about Tom Seaver. Why Tom Seaver? I was a big Tom Seaver fan, even though he was a Met. Um, We actually did two books together. They weren't about him. They were by him, and I was the guy that sat at the uh, computer and wrote them. But the first one was uh, he picked his greatest players of all time and talked about why. And it was called Tom Seaver's All-Time Baseball Greats. And the second one was Tom picked, uh, or I, Tom and I picked great moments in baseball history. I wrote about the moment, and he commented on um, his view of that game or that play and what his thinking would have been at the time. He was a pretty heady ball player. So... Uh, I'll tell you, my best memories of those two books are just sitting in his backyard in Connecticut, his wife Nancy refilling our lemonade glasses, and we sat and talked baseball all afternoon. Uh, If you can do that with a guy like Tom Seaver in the comfort of a backyard at a Connecticut mansion, you've had a good day. (laughs) Absolutely. Then you you've also written a book called Now Pitching for the Yankees that came out in 2002 and that was ESPN's best New York baseball book of the year. How'd that come about? Um, also, a publisher encouraged me to uh, write a memoir. He said, "You're a good storyteller. You've been around all these celebrities. You work with Phil Rizzuto and Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle and Yogi Berra and." How about just putting it down on paper? So now pitching for the Yankees was uh, a memoir of a lot of the stuff we've talked about on this interview. Um, Anytime somebody asks you to do a memoir, it's pretty flattering, and I guess you rarely say no. (laughs) But um, that was an enjoyable project. The problem was, 
although it was well-received and ESPN gave it that award, uh, the publisher went out of business less than six weeks after the book came out. That meant that was the end of distribution, publicity, everything. So the book barely reached its audience. Yankee books generally find good homes in among Yankee fans, Yankee universe. Uh, that one never really got its full readership, but people can still find it, and I think it's still on Amazon. It's called Now Pitching for the Yankees, and it's about my Yankee career and uh, you know all the fun events we had with that. Absolutely. One of probably probably the maybe the biggest and most important or impactful book that you've written is is Pinstripe Empire, the New York Yankees from before the babe to after the boss, published in 2012. It it's important because it was really the first narrative history of the team since Frank Graham's 1943 book, The New York Yankees: An Informal History. Talk about how that book came about. That is the book uh, that I'm most proud of because it really is, I think, an important book in that it hadn't been done since 1943. Um, Originally, it was going to be a biography of Colonel Jacob Rupert, the Yankee owner who purchased Babe Ruth and owned the team up until 1939. And so the publisher had agreed to biography of Jacob Rupert, but then as I started the research and I realized what a void there had been, I reconnected with the publisher and I said, what if we just made this the whole history back to 1903 to the present? So we sort of re- reworked the plan and the result was Pinstripe Empire, which has been updated a couple of times and hopefully will continue to be. And it really is or it has come to be seen as the definitive narrative history of of the Yankees. I say narrative because there have been some really excellent picture books covering their whole history, but um, this is is the narrative version. This is the uh, putting words to it, and uh, people found it very conversational, very easy to digest, not... uh, not like the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, but more of just a good baseball read. Sure. Absolutely. And Marty, we've got about 17 minutes left. I've got some more things I want to cover. Um, one of those is the book that you're, that you're, um, that is coming out on in paperback next week. It's called Casey Stengel, baseball's greatest character. Now, Casey Stengel you know, he obviously is known as the old professor. He spoke Stengelese. He's the only person who have ever worn the uniforms for all the New York teams, the Dodgers, Yankees, Giants, and Mets. Talk about uh, talk about where why you decided to write about Casey Stengel. The book came out last spring in hardcover, so the paperback edition comes out next week. And I'm proud to say the book was named the best baseball book of 2017 and won a thing called the Casey Award, which is just a coincidence. It's named for the Casey at the Bat (laughs) poem. (laughs) Um, But also a coincidence is I have a grandson named Casey, so uh, be that as it may. Uh, Casey Stengel had a terrific biography written about him in in the mid-1980s by my friend Bob Creamer, uh, who was one of the founding editors of Sports Illustrated. And I love that yep. book. It's a terrific book. But unavailable to Bob Creamer in the 80s was access to an Internet, where I was able to pick up a lot of long-lost anecdotes about Casey from the archives of newspapers in small towns that he played or managed in. And also, Casey's family provided me with an unpublished memoir written by Casey's wife, Edna, that she did in 1958, and uh, it was never published and never seen, and Bob Creamer didn't know about it. So all of a sudden, I had a wealth of information to work with, and it really more than justified a new biography for this guy that was voted baseball's greatest character, by no less than MLB Network 
when they did superlatives in their first and second year on the air. So they named Casey the greatest character in baseball history, and that was over Babe Ruth and Yogi Berra and Jackie Robinson and Dizzy Dean, and well, over everybody. He beat out 16,000 guys. So uh, the book, again, nicely received, lots of laughs in there because Casey was a funny, funny guy. And I learned a lot about Casey. I knew him a little bit because I was the guy that brought him back to Old Timers Day at the Yankees five times uh, towards the end of his life. But um, the book is fresh and new, hardcover last March, paperback next week. And you you talk about you know these characters that you've that you've gotten to experience Casey Stengel and Yogi Berra obviously um, kind of being the two most probably the two most prominent ones. Um, when you you know Casey Stengel is probably known for two things really popularly obviously other than managing he is he's probably known for wi- winning a World Series game with a walk off. Um, with a walk-off home run, and he also uh, notably, notably in uh, Ken Burns series, also once lifted his hat and flipped and and gave the bird to the crowd. So, <laughs> as you mentioned, you know, I'm sure that there are many humorous humorous stories in there from Casey, as he he was voted the number one character of all time by MLB Network. So. So everybody can check that out. That is on that is on Amazon. It is at Barnes and Noble and various bookstores nationwide. I want to say one more thing about Casey because as yeah. I was doing my research and writing over two years, it became apparent to me that nobody under forty had heard of Casey Stengel, let alone could name his <laughs> any of his accomplishments. So that was a big age group that wasn't going to be buying this book. I was obviously writing for an older audience. But just the fact that I made him relevant again and his name was in headlines again when they were book reviews made me feel good that the old guy was kind of back in the news. And for those of your listeners under 40 who aren't familiar with him, his first five years managing the Yankees, he won five straight world championships had never been done before or since. Maybe it'll never happen again. But um, after a long career of second division finishes in the National League, uh, Mm. suddenly he had his ticket punched to Cooperstown and became acknowledged as a baseball genius. Absolutely. From 19, I think it was 47 or 48, all the way up until about 1960. 12 years, seven World Series, and nine... Champ, nine American League championships. So yeah, it was very pennants and seven World Championships. Ten pennants and seven World Series or seven titles. Okay, um, so one of don't mess with a baseball you... guy on facts, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. Absolutely, absolutely. When I was a kid in Queens, New York, if somebody told me that somebody hit two seventy eight last year and it was two seventy nine, he lost his speaking privileges for six months. That's just the way okay. it is. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I stand corrected, definitely. Um, so one other thing, one other really cool thing that you've been able to do, and you kind of mentioned this earlier when we were talking about King Kelly, is you served as the editor-at-large for the National Baseball Hall of Fame Museum's quarterly magazine, but you also helped to write the text on plaques for Hall of Fame inductees. Talk about that experience and what that was like. Ed Stack was the president of the Baseball Hall of Fame, a good friend. And in 1979, he asked me if I could just review the copy that they were planning uh, for the new inductees. So I was happy to do it. And uh, one of them was Willie Mays. And under Willie's name, it said, Say Hey Kid. And I said, no, it's really the Say Hey Kid. It's not Say Hey Kid. Another one of those small little details. Anyway, that just started 21 years where I would review the copy and have my chance to participate in uh, the input on it. And uh, I love doing that. So I see those plaques there now that I had uh, something to do with, and it's an extra special feeling. 
Who are some of the players that you got to uh, – you mentioned Willie Mays, but who are some of the other players' plaques that you got to uh, look over? Well, the one that I like to talk about is uh, the owner, Bill Veck, because as some of yeah. your listeners may know, Bill Veck, among other things, was kind of famous for signing a midget to go to bat in a game, Eddie Goodell. Eddie so Goodell, now yeah. we're faced with the problem of putting this on the plaque, it's actually the sort of thing that keeps you out of the Baseball Hall of Fame, not gets you in. Right. Uh, so how are we going to deal with Eddie Goodell? Now, um, Bill was a what you'd call a populist owner. The, the fans loved the guy, and he always seemed to do the fan-friendly thing. So I'm pondering for several days, what do we do about Eddie Goodell? What do we do about the midget? And then I'm equating it with his acts of generosity towards the fans. And finally, I say, you know what? Make the last line on the plaque say, a champion of the little guy. And I thought that had it all covered. (laughs) Absolutely. And a very appropriate way to put that, too. Yeah. So So, uh, when I see that plaque... In the uh, in the Hall of Fame, I have special pride in that one. Absolutely, as well you should. So, one, a couple other cool things that you need to do is, and we have a, just under ten minutes left, Marty. We have, um, one of the other cool things you've gotten to do is you're on the board of directors for two different organizations. One of them is the Yogi Berra Museum and Learning Center, and you are. And you are also a member of the Board of Trustees of the New York Sports and Hall of Fame, and you were a member of the Advisory Council of the Israel Baseball League. How about being on the Board of Directors and Trustees for those two organizations? Yeah, that's sort of um, their honors that go with getting older and being in the business for a while and uh, proud to serve all of them. Uh, There's actually a couple of other things that I'm on the board now since that was written. One is the New York Transit Museum in Brooklyn. That's not really sports, but you think of the subway series when you think of the subways. So I'm on the board of directors for the New York Transit Museum. And um, I also work with a group called uh, Reach Out and Read, where I go every week to Bellevue Hospital, the nation's largest public hospital, and I read to the kids in the pediatric waiting room to sort of help develop a love for books for them. So those are things that I'm doing now that I really enjoy. Is that what you're most proud of? Most proud of my kids' success. Um, My son is the founder and producer of Boston Calling, which is a major music festival every year in Boston. It'll be coming up this May, featuring Eminem as their lead performer. And my daughter works for CBS. So you've heard of CBS, and now when you watch CBS, think of Marty Appel's daughter. (laughs) Absolutely. Marty, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you for one more Mickey Mantle and one more Yogi Bear story to close it out today. Okay. Well, Mickey, um, I had always wanted a broken bat when I was doing the fan mail. It didn't have to be Mickey's. I just wanted a souvenir broken bat. Elliot Ashley was the Yankee bat boy that year, and he made the final road trip of the season up to Fenway Park. Um and he brought me back a broken bat, and it could have been anybody's, but it was a Mickey Mantle bat, because Mickey had batted on in the Saturday game in the first inning. He popped out to Rico Petroselli, the shortstop, cracked the bat. It didn't break in half, but it was cracked. And uh, Elliot scooped it up, remembered that I was looking for one, and he brought it back to me on Monday. Well... I loved it and obviously kept it, but it turned out that that was Mickey Mantle's last time at bat. So that was really a treasure, and gosh, that was like one of the best things I ever owned. Um, His last time at bat. Nobody knew it was his last time at bat. It didn't have that special 
bells and whistles going off. Mm-hmm. He took himself out of the game after that at bat, and he left. He actually flew back home, didn't play Sunday, wasn't there, and that was the end of his career. Um, he announced his retirement in spring training the following year. So I really wound up with a treasure there. Um, do, you, do, you still have that, do you still have that bat? I had it for over 25 years, and then I put it up for auction, and happy to say it paid for the first year of my son's college education. So it was, <laughs> it was to good use. <laughs> Thank you, Mick. Excellent. Yeah, um, And you wanted a yogi story? Please. It was, yogi was a man of few words, but... Um, Everything he said, like, ultimately made sense or nobody could say it quite like Yogi could or he would observe things nobody else would. We were sitting around in the office at the Yogi Berra Museum one day, and um, we were happened to be talking about Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe. And Yogi just pops in and says, uh, I had dinner with them one night. And I, like, startled, and I go, you did? Yogi, I have to know everything about that dinner, everything. Tell me everything you remember about that dinner. He says, well, you know how when you order a shrimp cocktail, usually you get five shrimp? That night we got eight. And I said, that's your memory from the dinner with Joe and Marilyn? He says, that's what I remember. Yogi was paying attention to the shrimp cocktail with Joe and Marilyn sitting at the table with him. And that was Yogi, a simple man who got right to the point. And those eight shrimp instead of four or five was a big deal for him. Absolutely. Well, Marty, I have taken up enough of your time. We have just about three minutes left here. Is there? Do you have any other things you'd like to promote on here? I know you mentioned the the Casey Stengel book is coming out in paperback. Uh, where can where can listeners find that? Uh, the traditional book buyer places, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, but I also like to plug the independent bookstores who struggle but are great Thank places you. and. Buy it at an independent bookstore and support those guys if you can. That's a message I'd like to impart. And one last message I'd like to leave with you as I approach my 70th birthday and half a century in and around baseball. Uh, Now I have a grandson growing up in Boston. And people have always said to me, oh, you must hate the Mets, you must hate the Red Sox. And I've suddenly taken the position there really shouldn't be room for hate in baseball or in sports because that's not what sports is about. Uh, people tend to root for the team where they grew up, their hometown team, and that's terrific. I love Red Sox Nation. I love the way the fans support their team and turn out in force at Fenway Park. I don't have any hate in my heart for these rivalries. I like to beat those guys. I like to win the pennants. But this sports doesn't have to be a place for hatred. So uh, when people say to me, I'll bet you hate the Mets, no, I don't hate the Mets at all. I kind of root for their success. It would be fun to have a Yankee Met World Series again. So uh, that's kind of my final parting thoughts for you. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, what a, what a, what an hour this has been with New York Times bestselling author Marty Appel. He is the author of over 20 different books, a lot of Yankee books. He's he's a phenomenal and fantastic storyteller. He's been so gracious to be on the podcast. He is also an Emmy Award winner. And for those of you who are going to listen to this, he was. He also had a pretty, uh, pretty interesting summer of 1968 with Mickey Mantle. So, please go ahead and make sure that you support him. Buy his books at independent, at small bookshops, mom and pop. Make sure you're checking them out from your local library as well. Libraries are an important part in American culture. We need to make sure that people are, people are supporting those as well. Marty, I cannot thank you enough for giving me an hour of your time and talking baseball and reminiscing with me. It's It's been one of the true joys that I've had since starting this podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for the kind words. Happy to be on with you. Thank you. Have a good day.
Ladies and gentlemen, that was Marty Appel. He is the best-selling author of over 20 different books. Stay tuned. We've got two more episodes coming on later this evening. Thank you very, very much, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll see you down the road in podcast land.